What's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Why can't women become priests? 1-833-288-EWTN. I don't understand why I have to earn salvation. 1-833-288-3986. Why do I need to confess my sins to a priest? What's stopping you? This is Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Welcome to Call to Communion. I'm your host, David Anders, and the number to be on the show is 1-833-288-3986. 1-833-288-3986. If you're outside North America, you can dial 1, then 205-271-2985. And again, the 800 number is 1-833-288-3986. The show is called to Communion. All people are called to Communion with Christ in the church that he founded, which, if you're wondering is the Catholic Church, and we want to know what's stopping you from becoming a Catholic. So call us and tell us about it. Hit us with your best shot at 1-833-288-3986. I'm here with Charles Beery, my producer. Normally, I'm joined by Tom Price, who is doing this part of the show and facilitating while I get to kick back and look at my computer and start perusing questions and getting ready, but Tom Price is off gallivanting today, so I'm here all by my lonesome with Charles. I'm not sure who we've got on social media today, Charles. You don't know. Is it Ace McKay? With him, I will say it's Ace McKay. Might be Ace McKay and Matt Gubinski, I think, is probably screening the call. So thank you guys. And uh, and we welcome your calls at one 288 So, you know, we get email questions, too. And you can always email us at uh, ctc at ewtn.com with your questions. And you can post your uh, questions to social media, Facebook uh, Live, and so forth. Um, but uh, we get all kinds of questions. And this one, I've got a question that I'm kind of dying to answer because it sounds a lot of fun. Um, and it's not really a, this is what's stopping me from becoming a Catholic. It's kind of a, you know, Anders was talking about something interesting. This one says, okay, Dr. Anders, I'm dying to know, who are some popular saints that you think said outlandish and erroneous things? All right. Could you give some examples of the errors if you don't want to name the saints? All right. I love the show. Thanks, Hannah. And here's what I like about this question, right? Um, that saints are human beings, and they have opinions, and they have points of view, and they have perspectives. And they're saints because they they had heroic charity, and and they perfected the virtues. It doesn't mean that everything they did turned to gold, right? It doesn't mean that they weren't human beings that had, uh, you know, narrowness of view and cultural blinders and maybe an infelicity of expression and, and these kinds of things. So that they're not infallible. They're not... They're not not inspired like Holy Scripture, and we don't have to believe everything that a saint says. I mean, I remember having a conversation with a woman one time, a Catholic woman that I know she's passed on now, and uh, there's, a, there's an urban legend that, um, that Voltaire and, and other uh, celebrated atheists you know, have these deathbed conversions, and they, they come back to Holy Mother Church before they die. And she said, well, you know, Voltaire came back to church before he died. I said, no, he didn't. She said, yes, he did. I said, no, he didn't. She said, well, you know, Saint so-and-so said he did. And I was like, Okay, well, then St. So-and-so is wrong. And she said, well, he's a saint. I went, yeah, and he's still wrong, right? So saints can make mistakes. So I was kind of jotting down a list of some of these things uh, that I might share with you before the show begins. One that just occurred to me while I was talking, it's not so much an error 
as it is an infelicity of expression. And, and you know, when I was coming into the Catholic faith, I read a lot of the uh, Church's spirituality, mystical literature, and half the time I couldn't make heads or tails of it. I, make, I think I make more sense out of it now, having been Catholic for 20 years. But uh, I used to think the problem lay entirely with me, that I was just too thick-headed to make any sense out of mystical literature. Then it struck me one day, after I had spent a lot of time thinking about the craft of writing, um, that some of them are just bad writers. Some of them are just bad writers. And I'll give you the, the, my prime example of this. Love the Saint, fantastic mystic, great spiritual counsel, terrible writer, Teresa of Avila. Her Interior Castle, uh, Book of My Life, uh, Way of Perfection, great mystical literature by Teresa of Avila. She wrote under obedience. She didn't have an outline. She didn't write consistently. And so you can pick up Teresa and she'll say things like, I'm going to talk about the virtue of hope. Then she'll turn around and talk about something completely different for five pages. Then all of a sudden she goes off on another theme. You have no idea where she's going. And then you hit another paragraph and it'll say, well, you know, I haven't picked up the manuscript in three months and I can't remember what I was saying, but this is what I want to talk about now. And so you're like, what is going on with this text? You know, and a great saint, wonderful spiritual advice, not always a good writer. Sometimes it's a matter of, um, of, uh, of, of saints being taken out of context, making a statement that maybe has a kind of, uh, a kind of uh, evocative grip to it, but, uh, but if taken literally, I think, could get you in trouble. So I'll give you a great example. One of my favorite quotes, I mean, I really appreciate the quote, is from Alphonsus Liguri. He said, he who prays will be saved, and he who doesn't pray will not be saved. Well, there's a point of view that you can take on that, I think, is perfectly intelligible. But if you take that quite literally, well, obviously, you need more than prayer to be saved. You need charity, right? But you could take, you could take him out of context and misunderstand him. I think the same thing is true of Louis de Montfort. Obviously, great Marian devotionalist who who encourages people in that uh, in, in our love of the Blessed Mother. But you could take De Montfort in some of his passages uh, as saying, "Well, all you need is to be devoted to Mary, and you'll be saved." But clearly, that's not the case. You also need charity, right? Um, so Saint Augustine, my favorite of all the saints in the universe, uh, was taken out of context by Cornelius Jansen, uh, founder of the Jansenist movement, and uh, and run in some pretty dangerous directions. And so when I was a non-Catholic and I was reading about the 18th century Catholic history and I came across the Pope's bull Unigenitus condemning Jansenism, I was reading through the condemnations and I said, wait a minute, the Pope's condemning Augustine. And I actually had to call up Scott Hahn one day before I was Catholic. I said, Dr. Hahn, what's going on with Unigenitus? How is he condemning this passage out of Augustine? And he says, no, no, you don't understand. He's not condemning Augustine. He's condemning the use that Jansen made of that particular quotation. So it's very contextual. And I went, oh, okay, there's a lot I need to learn about how you actually do Catholic theology. Taken out of context, I was getting myself into big trouble. Um, and then here's another one that always uh, fascinates me. Evagrius Ponticus, 4th century uh, Egyptian theologian, monastic theologian, who, who had a method of combating temptations that he learned from Stoicism, and it involved... Uh, say if you had uh, the temptation to pride, you would, in his mind, you would throw up against it the temptation to lust as a way of kind of combating pride, letting you know you weren't all that great stuff after all. And obviously, there's a way of maybe reflecting on the weakness of your flesh that could combat your pride. There's another way you could do that that could lead you in the sin of lust, right? So again, context, 
discretion, prudence is the key to interpreting all these guys, which is just an argument against being a fundamentalist when it comes to reading the saints or any theological literature. You don't just necessarily take them literally in their straightforward denotative sense. You have to have an understanding of the person and the context to make sense of them. All right, so enough of that. We'll see you back in a few minutes after this break. one 288 3986 Welcome back to Call to Communion. I'm your host, Dr. David Anders, and the number to be on the show is 1-833-288-3986. So at the moment, I have completely open phone lines. I don't seem to have any calls in the hopper right now being screened. So unless Matt's got something going I don't know about. So I would encourage you to call with your outlandish, never had the guts to ask this question because we need you to call one 888 3986. 1-833-288-3986. Whatever's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? What's stopping your mailman from becoming a Catholic? What's stopping your great uncle's second cousin twice removed from becoming a Catholic? Call me and tell me about it at 1-833-288-3986. Um, in the meanwhile, here's another question from a listener. This one from Mylene in Montreal. She says, Hi, Mr. Price and Dr. Anders. Who created hell? I love listening to your show, and I really appreciate your program. Thanks so much, Mylene. appreciate the question. So here's the Catholic doctrine. Anything that exists, anything that exists other than God was created by God. Anything that exists other than God was created by God. Now, when it comes to the question of hell, I myself am a little bit in doubt on this one. Should we consider hell to have a substantial existence? Like, does it exist as a substance? Okay, and what I mean by that is a, a thing that has its own kind of in, integral nature, you know, sort of has defined properties in an essence. Um, is, that, is hell that kind of thing? Or is hell more the word we use to describe the existential state of creatures who remain permanently alienated from God? And not thinking of them so much as being circumscribed, circumscribed in a place, you know, uh, ha- having the concept of hell as, you know, sort of like a prison cage or something. And then you have to imagine walls and bars and, you know, maybe a jailer, uh, that sort of image. Um, then, of course, you'd have to talk about a sort of positive substances that would be the, the object of a creative act. But if it's just an existential state... Uh, then we would be thinking more in terms of God creating and sustaining the rational agents who remain locked in that existential condition, if you see the distinction that I'm drawing. But in any event, however you conceive of it, whether as a, as a thing in itself or merely existential state, insofar as anything exists other than God, that thing was created by God, according to Catholic doctrine. So thanks for the question. All right, one 3986 Aha, so now the calls are starting to come in. I appreciate it. Uh, are we ready with uh, are we ready with Sam? Okay, let's go to Sam in Duluth, Minnesota. I had the longest trip of my life into Duluth, Minnesota. I, I did an event up there for Real Presence Radio years ago, and I flew from Birmingham, I think, to Atlanta, to, to uh, Minneapolis, St. Paul, to Duluth. So I changed planes all those times. We got planes flying in. We're like three feet off the runway, runway, and then the plane takes off again. They wouldn't let us land because of the fog. They directed us all the way to Grand Forks, North Dakota, 
land in Grand Forks. Here comes a blizzard. They say, if we don't get off the ground in 30 minutes, we're stranded in Grand Forks. So I'm desperately calling, trying to figure out if I can catch a ride from North Dakota to Minneapolis, to, uh, to Duluth, take off from Grand Forks, fly back to Minneapolis, get get stranded, rent a car at, at usurious and exorbitant prices, drive to Duluth, and show up with like five minutes to spare before my talk. I think I took me 24 hours to get there from Birmingham. Then the same thing happened on the way back. What a trip. But had a great time when I was there. Wonderful folks in Duluth. Sorry for that uh, diversion. Sam, thanks from Duluth. Thanks for calling. What can I do for you? Thank you, Dr. Anders. It's a pleasure. And you are saving souls day by day, which is much appreciated all over the world. Firstly, you could, maybe we could come pick you up anywhere you are, and you could come and offer us some live apologetics in the near future. Fantastic. It would help us greatly. Yes. The question is, I'm trying to marry a woman, and I'm a Catholic revert of late, and she is a Christian, not really into the Church and is teaching or picking up as, it is, as, as much as I'm seeking. And I'm curious as to this questionnaire, which asks, you know, about, um, you know, do you vow that you won't try to scandalize the Church or be a scandal to the Church in your relations and things, whereby I was kind of struck and wondered, has she scandalized herself enough? Are we really, as Christians, trying to do the right thing in the wrong if she doesn't become Catholic? Or how could I ever convince someone, or could the Church convince someone in that much doubt? Yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the question. So first of all, with respect to the question of scandal, I mean, that that's that's uh that's kind of an open-ended question. I mean, there's the, the church clearly allows for the marriage between Catholics and non-Catholics. And uh such arrangements can be an occasion for scandal. So for example, let's say a Catholic marries a non-Catholic and because of the non-Catholic ends up uh, neglecting his Catholic obligations to, to Mass or to support the works of the Church or, or, you know, to any aspect of his Catholic identity. He waters it down, perhaps, out of a kind of misplaced deference to the non-Catholic spouse. Well, that could be an occasion of scandal, to be sure. Um, or, you know, the non-Catholic spouse might make uh, moral demands upon the Catholic party, um, say, you know, in relationship to questions of human sexuality within the bonds of matrimony. And that's often an area where Catholics and non-Catholics don't see eye to eye. And so there are definitely occasions that where scandal could happen, but they're not inevitable. They're not inevitable. And it's not intrinsically scandalous for a Catholic to marry a non-Catholic. In fact, some of the most uh, celebrated conversions in the history of the Church have been through these kinds of mixed marriages. The first Catholic king of France, Clovis, uh, was uh, a pagan married to a Catholic princess, and he went on to become a Catholic king and the progenitor of all those guys named Louis, down to, you know, Louis Eighteenth or whatever we left off with the Louis was in France. Um, so it can be—and uh, uh, that's actually the most common reason for becoming Catholic. If you take a poll of RCIA members— Two-thirds of them across North America are coming into the Church because of marriages or family relationships of some kind. So, yeah, I mean, it, it, can, it can work the other way. Now, um, uh, th- your second question was, what could you say or what could the Church do to persuade your fiancé to become Catholic? Well, so I would look at it differently. In, instead of saying, you know, what can I do? Give me the formula that will infallibly ensure her conversion to Catholicism. Wrong question. Wrong question. You can't do that because faith is a gift, and you can't compel her by any kind of force of logic. In fact, the First Vatican Council taught—this is a dogmatic fact—that there is there is no truth accessible to reason 
that necessarily and intrinsically compels the consent of the will to the truth of Catholic dogma. So there are reasons, there are motives of credibility, there there are arguments that can render the act of faith rational, but but the Catholicism as a whole cannot be compelled by any particular historical reason. All right, and to attempt to do that is to attempt to square the circle, basically. I mean, you, the only way you can do that is to resort to manipulative tactics that are intrinsically dehumanizing and exploitive, and we don't want to do that. So what you do instead is you say, how can I best help my spouse to advance in the life of virtue and holiness? And, and the church has a beautiful doctrine of moral gradualism, whereby you do not have to climb the mountain in one day. Um, you, you take incremental steps in the direction of the true, the good, and the beautiful, and any incremental step you take in that direction is a step worth taking. And so you leave your wife's conscience or your fiancé's conscience intact, and you respect it, and then you simply, you simply take the integral steps that you can. Um, and, and, and look, you can advance in the life of virtue. Um, of course, Catholic faith is the most efficacious way of doing that, but you can advance in specific virtues without reference to explicit Catholicism as such. You know, you can work on justice and truth and courage and fidelity and temperance and all the rest of it. Uh, using the tools that are available to her within her own tradition, and they can become a point of contact and commonality between the two of you, and hopefully the generosity of spirit and the open-mindedness and the rationality and the virtue of your own Catholic faith will be intrinsically attractive to her, and she may, you know, eventually come come to your faith on her own terms, or she may not. She may not. But uh, but you need to think these things through at the beginning, which is what you're doing now, and that's good, and have conversations about the dignity of your conscience, the dignity of hers, um, and come to an arrangement so how you can live your Christian faith together with as little friction as possible, as much commonality as possible, respecting the dignity of one another's conscience. So I hope that's helpful to you, and I appreciate the call. Thanks uh, for calling. The number to be on the show again is one eight three three two eight eight three nine eight six. Let's see. Um, next one up would be, can we go to Carter in Mobile? Let's go to Carter in Mobile. Carter, welcome to Call to Communion. Thank you so much for all that you do. I truly love your show. I'm a new Catholic. I was recently, uh, when last year I was received in the Church. My question relates to the, the positive faith. With over 10,000 different Bible translations, why doesn't the Catholic Church have a patent on the Bible, or if they do endorse the World Council of Churches, why do they pay a royalty rather than just stick to what is theirs? Yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the question. So what's copyrightable is not the Bible. Bible's public domain. You can copyright a contemporary translation because that's the work of a particular scholar. You know, if I sit down and translate the Bible myself, my own blood, sweat, and tears go into that project, that's my intellectual property, not the tech, not the underlying text, not the Bible, but but the translation is my intellectual property. And so that can be copyrighted, and it's, you know, what is the, I don't know, copyright law in America is, you know, 70 years plus life of author, something like that. Um, and uh, the, the Catholic Church in North America does have a copyright on a translation. The New American Bible is copyrighted to the, to the uh, U.S. Council of, uh, the, the USCCB, the U.S. Um, Council of Catholic Bishops. 
Um, but there are other translations that are, of course, not licensed to the, not not copyrighted by the USCCB. And if a Catholic institution wanted to use those in a public context, they'd have to pay the licensing fee, and you would make that choice. That'd be a prudential choice. If you thought a particular translation was more felicitous, given your you know social historical context. So that's why you would do it. Um, you know, I mean, there's nothing stopping a group of scholars or churchmen or ecclesiastics from producing an original translation and then offering it for free in the public domain. A person could do that, to be sure. So if, uh, you know, if you have that talent out there, guys, and, you know, you, you want to make a public domain translation, have at it. Now, you know, there are our public domain translations that have passed beyond copyright laws, and some of them have been produced by Catholic Church. So the Douay Reims, for example, is quite an old English translation of the Bible based on the Vulgate from the 16th century, um, is public domain, but it was produced by the Catholic faith. So I hope that answers the question. All right, thank you. number to be on the show is 1-833-288-3986, 1-833-288-3986. Let's go now to Sue uh, in North Dakota. Sue, welcome to Call to Communion. Thank you. I was wondering if the Church teaches that Satan can read your thoughts. Thank you. I really appreciate the question. The Church does not teach that the devil can read your thoughts. Uh, And the opinion of most Catholic theologians, uh, I'm not aware that this has ever been pronounced as a dogma, but it does seem to be the common opinion of theologians and seems to be confirmed by uh, spiritual writers and exorcists and the like, is that the devil cannot read your thoughts, but that he is a very good um, neuroscientist and cognitive scientist. And so he's a keen observer of the human condition and, and can influence... Uh, human thought and behavior uh, without actually being able to read your thoughts. Now, St. Thomas Aquinas, for example, lived, uh, you know, 800 years ago. He lived uh, long before modern neuroscience, and so he's operating with a faulty psychology and a faulty neurology. Um, he still believes in the theory of the four humors, for example, but I think his his speculations about demonic influence are instructive, and they could be translated into a different kind of scientific idiom. So Thomas's belief was that uh, the devil could influence physical matter, and since uh, the humors are a uh, physical property of the human person, the devil could, as it were, kind of push and pull on the, 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 the swirl and wave of, of, uh, of uh, sort of, uh, you know, the human physiology in a way that could excite the passions. And if you, you know, analogously, if you imagine it's, you take away the humors and you think in terms of, uh, say, neurotransmitters, that sort of thing, uh, Thomas, I think, today would say, yeah, the devil can, you know, could, could push and prod you in a way to, to, you know, suggest certain passions, certain responses, certain emotional reactions, and he knows you may, might know your personal history and this sort of thing, so he could influence you. And, and they might be able to draw some rational inferences about the kinds of things that you're likely thinking, you know, based on past experience, but it wouldn't be the same thing as mind reading. All right, I appreciate the question, Sue. Thank you so much. Number to be on the show is 1-833-288-3986, 1-833-288-3986. All right, let's go now to uh, Mary in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Mary, welcome to Call to Communion. Hi, I tuned in just a few minutes late, so I'm enjoying you taking the price, uh, the place of, of Mr. Price. But um, that said, I recently befriended a woman, very recently, and we were talking about religion. She is um, Orthodox Jew, and she, well, she actually left uh, the Orthodox part of her Judaism 
and she asked me if she could go to church with me. And so I would like to take her. I don't want to screw it up because I want to respect her faith. So I need, I'd like your advice. What would you do? Yeah, thanks. That's a great question. So that's that's an interesting one. It's a little bit touchy, and, I, and I'd have to know the woman, and I'd have to know your diocese in order to give a really informed answer. Um, obviously, I, I you know that the church condemns rigorously, vigorously condemns anti-Semitism and anti-Judaism. That doesn't hasn't prevented it from rearing its ugly heads even still today in in a few circles. And so, if I had knowledge that a particular cleric, you know, had any kind of anti-Semitic tendencies, I would definitely want to steer away from that cleric to be sure. Um, I, I, at the same time, I think I would uh, you know I would try to select what is likely to be an aesthetically very beautiful liturgy. Uh, I don't know how far you are from the cathedral in your diocese, but very often the cathedral liturgy is, you know, they usually have a pretty good organist and, you know, uh, very beautiful music and pageantry, and that might be approachable. Uh, so those are some thoughts right off the top. Welcome back to Call to Communion. I'm your host, David Anders. The number to be on the show was one 3986 Normally, I'm joined by my uh, facilitator and good friend, Tom Price, but he's off gallivanting in Priceland today, so I'm not sure what he's up to, but he's not around, so I'm all by myself, all by my lonesome, and I miss him dearly, so pray for the safe return of Tom Price. Um, outside North America, you can dial 205-271-2985. And again, the main line is one 288 3986 We welcome your calls uh, in answer to the question, what's stopping you, your relative, uh, you know, the dog catcher on your street, or anybody else you know from becoming a Catholic, one 288 3986 Let's go now to Karen in Frisco, Texas. Karen, welcome to Call to Communion. Hi, Dr. Andrews. Thank you so much. I appreciate your, your show very much. Thank you. And uh, my question today is, what am I supposed to do with the sins of omission? Yeah, <laughs> not commit them. Not commit them. What is committing that something that you don't do? Yeah, sure, exactly. So there are duties of our states of life. So let me give you a really great example. Uh, if a man is ordained to the sacred priesthood, for example, he has uh, a, a duty to say Holy Mass, right? And he may have a duty assigned to him by his bishop to say Holy Mass in a particular place, he also has a duty to, say, pray the Liturgy of the Hours, you know, several times a day. These are duties imposed by his state of life. So let's say, you know, said priest wakes up one morning and he says, eh, I'm not going to do morning prayer because, uh, you know, I'd rather play a round of golf. And then, you know, he looks at his watch and says, oh, Mass is start, start to, supposed to start in 15 minutes, but, you know, I've only made it to the 16th hole and I'm shooting a pretty good game. I'm just going to let it slide today and call in sick and, uh, you know— you know, Father help me out can take the Mass instead of me, and I'm going to skip out. He's not doing what he's supposed to be doing, right? That would be a sin for that priest to do that. Um, you know, St. Paul says someplace that the man who doesn't support his family is worse than an infidel. My father used to quote that text to me all the time. He rarely quoted Scripture, but he quoted that one, you know. So uh, husband says, I just got my paycheck, you know, biweekly check from, you know, down at wherever that I work, and um, I could I could go home and pay my child's Catholic school tuition, and you know give some money to my wife to buy groceries or whatever else she needs to do. But instead, I, I think I'm going to go play the slots. I'm going to go with my buddies down to Vegas and play the slots. 
That's a sin of omission. He has an obligation to care for his family. He's omitting that. And if it's, it's the duties imposed by a state of life, all right? Let's say you're a Catholic contemplative. You've made a commitment to the contemplative way of life. Maybe you're a cloistered religious. And so you have a moral duty to commit yourself to the life of prayer and contemplation. But you decide instead to spend all day playing World of Warcraft, right? That would be a sin of omission. Is that helpful? That's very helpful. Thank you so much. All right, no problems. Thank you for calling. The number to be on the show, 1-833-288-3986, 1-833-288-3986. Let's say, let's go now to Michael in Gladstone, Oregon. Michael, welcome to Call to Communion. Thank you, Dr. Anders. God bless you for doing what you do. Um, I have been reading the Acts of the Apostles, and I have noticed in there um for some reason, I guess I was, I've been unaware of this, um, how many uh, miracles the various disciples performed um, and, and in situations where they would, um, you know, lay the hands on people and tongues of fire would come down. Uh, they would cure uh, leprosy, evil spirits, and in some cases raise the dead. When did all that stop? Yeah. And when... When it did stop, did this become a crisis for the people in the faith? Because there must have been people that say, oh, hey, I remember when when Eutychus fell out of the window, and they went out and uh, they raised him up, and he was dead. And how come that's not happening anymore? Sure, sure. Yeah, absolutely. I really appreciate the question. So the question of the cessation of miracles— is a point of contention between the Catholic Church and the Protestant Church. And it was made a point of contention because in the 16th century, Catholic polemicists were very well aware of the fact that Protestants were preaching a different doctrine, and they said, look, when Christ sent the apostles out, he confirmed their message with miracles— you guys are making radical claims about totally reconfiguring the way the Christian faith has lived and expressed in the world, different from what Holy Mother Church has done for centuries. Don't you think, if such a great upheaval were intended by God, that he would confirm it by miracles? And, of course, Luther did no miracles. Calvin did no miracles. Wingley and Cranmer did no miracles. And they knew they did no miracles. And so this was the Protestant answer. We don't need no stinking miracles, right? Because we're preaching the faith once for all delivered to the saints. We're preaching the same faith that was, in fact, confirmed by miracles in the first century. And God doesn't need to do contemporary miracles in order to confirm our message. That was the Protestant position. That position became hardened in the 19th century by fundamentalists such as B.B. Warfield of Princeton Theological Seminary, Uh, in contradistinction to what theologians at the time called enthusiasm. Uh, That's a technical term in Protestant theology that refers to particular sects. There were groups of Christians running around that were claiming to perform miracles and to speak in tongues and to dream dreams and have visions. And, uh, And a lot of times those manifestations were frenetic and highly emotional and tended to fanaticism, and the, the, the more staid and sober university Presbyterian types like Warfield 
opposed quote-unquote enthusiasm, and they doubled down and wrote books about it and, and confirmed and made it a point of dogma, not just that God uh, had stopped doing miracles just as a kind of sort of as a, an accidental fact, but that was in fact essential to the nature, the nature of the contemporary gospel proclamation that it not be confirmed by miracles because we, we weren't the kind of ecstatic visionaries and, and uh, contortionists that they were criticizing in the quote-unquote enthusiast movements. All right? So cessationism, uh, that is the technical term for that doctrinal position, became a, became a central claim of some forms of fundamentalist Christianity, cessationism. The Catholic Church, however, has never subscribed to cessationism, has always maintained the contemporary uh, relevance and reality of miracles. And so, for example, one of the criteria for uh, canonization, for elevating a saint to the altar, a person of holiness to the altar and declaring them to be a saint, um, is documentable miracles that have occurred as a result of that saint's intercession. And you can read the reports, and they're 99 times out of 100, they are uh, claims of medical miracles, cures that, that defy rational explanation, and certified by physicians who are experts in the field of whatever that particular disease or ailment is that says there's, there's no known uh, natural mechanism that could bring this about, and this must have been a miraculous healing. And so you, we have uh, copious contemporary accounts of miracles, and when you read the lives of the saints— uh, throughout the centuries, they are, of course, replete with claims of the miraculous. So, you know, go read Bonaventure's Life of Francis, for example, and and uh, and and you will be impressed by the by the plethora of miracles uh, ascribed to the little man from Assisi. Now, having said that, I confess that I personally, in my life, have never witnessed a miracle. Now, don't get me wrong; I didn't say I've never seen an answered prayer. And when I make those kind of claims on the air, sometimes somebody will call in and go, well, I've seen a miracle. You know, my husband was a pagan for 68 years, and no one ever thought he would convert to the Catholic faith. And then, you know, we prayed a rosary, and he converted, right? Well, that may be supernatural, but it's not the technical definition of a miracle, which is a sensible phenomenon um, that is a kind of wonder that, that defies any rational explanation. Whereas, you know, things like you know, dramatic conversions may have a supernatural influence, but they don't qualify the empirical test of miracles. Uh, one of the most orthodox and holiest and kindest priests I ever knew was a man named Lambert Greenan, who died at the age of 101, and he was a, a Dominican for over 85 years, became a Dominican when he was uh, 16 years old. Once I asked Father Lambert, I said, Father Lambert, have you ever seen a miracle? He thought about it for a second. He said, mm, no. Nope, don't think I have. I said, you ever had a doubt? He said, no, not for a second. So um, the Catholic position is that miracles do exist, um, but uh, they're rare. They're rare. And, and, uh, and so there you have it. That's the position. Um, anyway, the number to be on the show is 1-833-288-3986. I read an interesting book one time by a Pentecostal theologian named John Ruthven, R-U-T-H-V-E-N. I don't necessarily recommend his theology because it's not Catholic, but uh, he wrote a doctoral dissertation critiquing the cessationism of B.B. Warfield. And uh, I read that you know, probably 20 years ago when I was in grad school. So anybody who's interested in sort of inter-Protestant polemics on the question of cessationism, Ruthven's book is an interesting academic study trying to undermine Warfield's conclusions for whatever that's worth. 
written from a Pentecostal point of view. All right, number to be on the show, 1-833-288-3986. Let's go now to, let's see, who's next in line? This would be Chris in Cleveland, Ohio. Chris, welcome to Call to Communion. Hi, thank you. Um, I recently read, I'm, I'm a convert, and that Catholics should know the Magnificat of Mary, the Act of Contrition, and Psalm 51. So for Lent, I thought, I'm going to practice Psalm 51. But I have questions on understanding what some of, um, some of the verses mean, particularly um, verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. That just sounds bad. And in 8, Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. And then the last few is at the very end, where it says, um, O Lord, you take no delight in sacrifice. And it it goes on, you know, you would not be pleased. The sacrifice acceptable to God is a broken spirit. So why do we sacrifice at Lent? It confuses me. Sure. Sure. Yep. Let me attach, let me address all these. Let me do the last one first. So the sacrifice that David speaks of when he says, sacrifice and offering you do not desire, he is specifically talking about the sacrifice of goats and bulls and sheep and oxen offered in the temple in Jerusalem, the bloody sacrifice of animal victims. And this is a constant theme of the prophets. Although God commanded animal sacrifice of the Israelites, he simultaneously tells them that he has no need of it. And, and you know, he owns all the cattle on a thousand hills, so what difference does it make to him if you give him another one, right? It's just that he doesn't have any intrinsic pleasure in that. He's certainly not, he does not, he's not feasting on slaughtered animals, nor is he propitiated by their blood. You know, I mean, all that is, uh, he has no need of that stuff. And, and so the conclusion that you draw, the proper theological conclusion, is that why then would God command sacrifice? And, uh, and the answer is that the significance of that kind of sacrifice, the sacrifice of, say, goats and bulls, is that the worshiper is giving up something of value. And so it's a, it's a, it's a token of his sincerity, because what ca- God cares about is the relationship of one's heart. Uh, that's why he says, sacrifice and offering you do not desire, but a contrite heart you will not despise. Genuine penitence, the kind that would that turn from evil and do good, as opposed to, say, to the uh, to the man who exploits his employees or abuses his wife, and then makes a show of his piety by offering you know a hundred bulls on an altar, though he hasn't actually fundamentally changed his way of life. That's the kind of thing that the prophets are critiquing. And so, in the Catholic life, um, the purpose of offering sacrifice, especially the sacrifice of the mass, but even things like sacrifices that we might make for Lent, they're always with an eye to the transformation of our inner life, our interior life, that we become people who are humble and contrite and penitent and hungering and thirsting for righteousness. And if the sacrifices that we perform don't have that effect, if, for example, Jesus criticizes those who, who, who give alms in order to be seen by men, right? If our motive is just to make a show of ourselves, to make a kind of spectacle, then our motives are far from what God desires, and they have no value. Uh, but if we give two cents— uh, out of the proper motive, then that's far more valuable than, you know, giving $200 million uh, out of vanity. Does that make sense? It does. It's very clear. Fantastic. Thank you. Thank you so much. All right. The number to be on the show, one 288 3986 
1-833-288-3986. Let's go now to Bernadette in Columbus, Ohio. Bernadette, welcome to Call to Communion. Hi, thank you. Um, I was recently engaging in some discourse with somebody about abortion, and they came back with uh, St. Hildegard von Bingham um, performed chemical abortions. I wanted to know how is that permissible it isn't. by the Catholic Church? It isn't. It's not. Um, so abortion has been, has been uh, understood to be a grave moral evil from the very first century. And so, you know, one of the earliest Christian writings to comment on it was the Didache, which is a document that was produced either in the first or early second century, and it specifically condemns abortion. Um, you know, abortion has been—any time the question has ever been raised in the history of Catholic moral theology, it's always regarded as a gross and terrible evil. And so I'm not sure what the claim is about Hildegard of Bingen. Um, but I guarantee you that the uh, the clerical censors who undertook her cause uh, know very well the history of her life and are pers- she, they, she wouldn't have been elevated to the altar. I can assure you that if uh, if the church were persuaded for half a second that she had engaged in intentional chemical abortion. Um, so I mean, there's 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 probably some story there. I don't know what it is. I can't go into the details, but it would not it would certainly wouldn't rise to the level that any that anyone investigating her case would come to that conclusion so you know it's it's not a common at all history is is used polemically all the time by partisans and uh and all you know alternative histories and dissenting histories are always kind of trying to dig through di- documents and come up with wild theories to impugn or uh, an historical figure. I mean, take you an example, and this is one to do some know something about when when uh, when John Henry Cardinal Newman was um, was being considered for canonization, and he's he's he he succeeded. He was in fact canonized. He's Saint John Henry Newman now. Um, there were several people in the media that made the claim that Newman was a closeted homosexual, and they based that argument on the fact that Newman had a very close personal friend. I mean, very very close personal and intimate friend. Uh, with whom he he wanted to be buried when he died he wanted them to be in the same grave and so there was a uh, uh, there was a uh, there was a a story that circulated in the media that homoeroticism could be the only possible explanation for that and so it started getting carried about there was an urban legend that Newman was a homosexual well you know you can read um, uh, Kerr's biography of Newman, and he puts that that uh, that urban legend, you know, to death with a with a thousand arrows. There's absolutely no truth in it. That kind of thing happens in the in the hagiography and what you might call the anti-hagiography of Catholic saints all the time. I don't know the one about Hildegard of Bingen, but if I've looked into it, I'm, I'm pretty confident that there's no basis to that. All right, thanks for the call. The number to be on the show was one eight three three two eight eight three nine eight six. Let us go to Tony in Los Angeles, California. Tony, welcome to Call to Communion. Hi, Dr. Anders. I have a quick question about St. Augustine. Um, I was reading some, uh, I was reading a book and some other material. So Jesus was a Jew is one of them. And in, and in there, they basically talk about how St. Augustine talks about how, you know, the, the, uh, basically the Jews were deprived of their kingdom and all that because they didn't believe in, in Jesus. Well, my first question is, isn't this a concept that's from the Torah, from the Old Testament? And then my other question is, the same logic was used um, when, whenever the Europeans lost the war against, uh, you know, Islam, let's say. You know, it, it, was the same, it was the same logic. They lost because they were being chastised. And so my question is, how, how is it that 
St. Augustine gets so like he's so accused of, of anti-Semitism when the same concept is found in the Torah and other Jews have I've, I've come across other rabbis who believe the same thing. So how is how 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 is it that St. Augustine is accused of anti-Semitism? I don't understand. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. So we need to draw a distinction between anti-Semitism and anti-Judaism. Anti-Judaism is an animus against the Jewish religion. Anti-Semitism is a very spurious racial theory that there is a that there is a distinct ethnicity that one might call Semitic, um, and this, of course, we associate with uh, with nineteenth and twentieth century fascism, particularly the National Socialists in Germany, but but others as well, that tried to you know not just impugn Jewish religion, Jewish practice, but the idea that you know that there was some sort of distinctly Jewish ethnicity that had congenital features that rendered the Jew as such as some kind of hateful creature and a kind of infection that needed to be extirpated from from humanity. And of course, that's what inspired Hitler's uh, horrific, uh, horrific uh, so-called final solution. And there's no doubt that anti-Judaism, that the history of anti-Judaism in, in Christian society um, aided and abetted and fomented what would eventually become anti-Semitism, but they are conceptually distinct, right? And so what you find in most of the church fathers, and not just Augustine, and, and this is unfortunately the case, but it is the case, is you do find a fairly pronounced anti-Judaism, that there is a palpable polemic against Judaism um, that is not always, um, you know, it's not just good faith debate about religious differences, but there's a lot of invective that's used and a lot of demeaning and derogatory language. Um, and that would be true of Augustine as well as Chrysostom and, and others of the fathers. And, um, you know, there, we really don't have—there's really not a defense for that. I'm certainly not interested in defending them. I don't, I don't concede their position, and the Church today doesn't concede their position. And the best we can do is to chalk it up to say that they were men of their time. And if you read any kind of polemical literature from antiquity, and not just Christian polemical literature, you'll, you will note— that that kind of invective is uh, is ubiquitous. I mean, like when when people engage their polemical rivals in antiquity, it's it's ruthlessly and it's always going for the jugular. And that was true when Christians wrote against Jews, and when non Christians wrote against Christians, when you know X wrote against Y. It was always this kind of uh, this kind of vicious battle to the death and, and stereotyping and invective and narrow minded bigotry. It's just it's, that was an unfortunate feature of the intellectual culture of the day, and Christians were not immune to it. Um, as to why Christian authors might be singled out, I think, for, for a particular attack, and, and other bigoted authors may be left unmolested by posterity, well, I think it's because the Catholic Church, you know, is a very big and prominent cultural target. And, and you know, the, the logic of a lot of multicultural narrative is that, you know, it's the narrative of the oppressor versus the oppressed. And so since, you know, Christianity is the 800-pound gorilla of Western history, um, those that are typically perceived to be in the oppressed class rather than the oppressor class are the ones that get a pass in uh, in historical writing, and, and Christianity never seems to get a pass in that regard for, you know, for the same reason. At least that's the way I would read the story. But I uh, appreciate the call. Thank you very much. The number to be on the show is one eight three three two eight eight three nine eight six. Let us go now to Joe in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Joe, welcome to Call to Communion. Hi. Yeah. Um, thank you so much for taking my question. Um, I read a book 
called uh, Why Why God Why Jesus Why the Catholic Church recently, and um, in the book it says uh, refers to the church as Jesus's body, um, like when. Paul was knocked off the horse. Jesus appeared to him and said, "Why do you persecute me?" But um, you also hear the church being called the mother, and I'm I'm just curious, like what's what's is it both? Is it is it one? Is, are they yeah? Are they, is it both or is it one? Yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the question. It is, of course, both, and they are not the only two metaphors that you find in the tradition to, to describe the church. Another common metaphor applied to the church is that the church is a boat. The, the, the bark of Peter, you'll sometimes hear. And that, of course, is a reference to uh, 1 Peter chapter 3, when, when the church and baptism are, um, are compared to the Ark of Noah, right? They carried the, the few through the waves, and, and, of course, the church does that through the, you know, the vagaries of human sin and all the rest of it in culture. So there are a lot of different metaphors. The church is also a light. Um, the Second Vatican Council referred to the church as the light of the nations, Lumen Gentium, and we could come up with other metaphors as well. But the, the, the metaphor of the body of Christ is a special one, and it's more than a metaphor. The, you know, the boat and these kinds of things, they're clearly metaphors, but the body of Christ is a little bit more than a metaphor. And it seems in the mind of the Apostle Paul that the identification of the Christian with Christ is quite real, although mystical, i.e. in a way that escapes our rational understanding, that in baptism we die with Christ and are raised with him in more than a symbolic way, that there is a real ontological change in the nature of the human person, that there is a mark placed upon the soul that is ineradicable, uh, such that wherever you go, Christ goes with you. And so in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul makes the very arresting claim that Christians should not participate in prostitution because if they do, they will unite the body of Christ to a prostitute. And the realism of that is shocking in its vulgarity uh, and realism, that there is something so closely identified between the physical person of a Christian and Jesus Christ that, that the members of Christ could be implicated in sin in that way. That's the reason Paul says you shouldn't ever do that kind of thing. It also undergirds the Catholic devotion to the relics of the saints, that we believe that in venerating the relics of saints, we are literally venerating Christ and his members. So there's a, so something special about the metaphor of the body of Christ that transcends those other metaphors. But thanks for the question. So there's a lot of people that are still on hold this, today's an unusual day because I'm actually here for another hour. If you guys want to hang on for five minutes, I'm actually going to host EWTN's Open Line in a, with a call-in show for non-Catholics. So you could consider it Open Line or like Call to Communion Part 2. So if you want to hang on for five minutes, I'll be right back with EWTN's Open Line. <laughs> 